Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? In this movie, we're fighting a nuclear war or trying to avoid one, but the entire time, all they basically do is use teleconferences, the president talking to SAC headquarters, the president talking to the Pentagon, all done over uh, teleconferences. Yeah. I don't know what would be worse, uh, surviving a nuclear war or having to be on a two-hour teleconference. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. There are a lot of movie podcasts out there, but we're glad you've uh, found the one that has the team of experts watching movies about nuclear weapons and then needlessly overanalyzing them. You can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and YouTube. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. And you know what? If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a second to go on iTunes and rate and review the show. Uh, if you leave a review and uh, we earn five stars from you, please write in the review uh, what your favorite movie crazy plot device is, nuclear or otherwise. For example, every time my wife and I watch the Harry Potter movies, I get very annoyed and get into an argument with her about why Voldemort didn't use basically any spell that he has in his arsenal to kill Harry Potter except for that dumb killing curse one, which never works for him. He's a dark wizard that can create fireball dragons, but can't adapt his one-note method to be able to take down his nemesis. I don't get it, but that's just mine. What about yours? So please let us know. I'm Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies and works on nuclear policy at a think tank in Washington, D.C., but I'm also that annoying friend of yours who can't help himself from pausing a movie to comment on whether or not something passes my technical muster. So our podcast listeners don't have to just listen to me nitpick everything. My co-host here is here to keep us grounded. This is Joel. I'm one of Tim's friends, which makes me eminently qualified to be on a nuclear podcast. Uh, I do enjoy a good movie, though, and good conversation. And, uh, yeah, but fortunately, I'm not alone. Yeah, today we're joined by another guest, our friend Victoria, who we've known for almost a decade. Um, and while her expertise is mostly in 80s and 90s dance movies and the Turner uh, movie classic collection, uh, we are excited to have her here today. Victoria, please introduce yourself. Hi, guys. Tim, not to be super critical, but it's Turner classic movies, but not a bad start. I'm also a defender of his wife and what she likes about Harry Potter, so that makes me eminently qualified to be here, also because they offered me pizza. The pizza is a great get. Today, we got together to go back in time to 1964, to a year where two movies were released by Columbia Pictures, both dealing with U.S. President trying to stop U.S. bombers that are in the air on their way to blow up Moscow. You probably already have heard of Dr. Strangelove, but today we are giving the, an underdog a chance to shine as we watched the movie Failsafe, a 1964 drama thriller. And as the movie poster tells us, it will have you sitting on the brink of eternity. This movie was directed by Sidney Lumon, who you probably have heard of from a lot of movies from that era. Uh, great director. He directed 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, and a number of uh, classics. And it was also based on a book, based on a book by two political scientists, a book by the same name of Failsafe. It was serialized first in the Saturday Evening Post, 
during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So right as the America's anxieties about nuclear war were front and center, you had this article coming out in a very popular magazine, uh, very, very hugely successful at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. But it really gives a picture to you about kind of when this movie came out um, and what and what people were thinking about when it when it was released alongside Dr. Strangelove, which came out earlier in the year. Joel, why don't you talk about the cast here a little bit? We have a lot of people, uh, big names in this movie, and also a lot of uh, big name people that that became bigger later on in smaller roles. Sure. Well, the the main character that I think everyone would recognize quickly is Henry Fonda, who plays the president, also um, uh, known for Grapes of Wrath, Twelve Angry Men, uh, etc. We also have Dan O'Herlihy playing General Black, or Blackie as he's referred to uh, throughout the movie. Uh, Walter Matthau, who most people know as a pretty funny guy, is actually here in a more uh, unconventional role as a professor. I still cannot pronounce his last name. Is it Groteshly? Something like that. I think that's a play on, on that name. I think it's Grotishel. But we can just call him the professor or uh, Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. Spoiler yeah. alert, he's not funny in this movie. That's no. a major disappointment. Not not at all. I think I'm just going to call him the professor. I think that works. Uh, but he's, he's basically playing, we'll talk about him uh, throughout the, the podcast, but plays a pretty bleak uh, character here. Not not very funny. Uh, we also had Frank Overton playing General Bogan, Edward Binns as Colonel Grady, and Dom DeLuise uh, in one of his first roles uh, playing a relatively minor part as a U- United States Air Force tech uh, sergeant. Uh, so not a very prominent role, but you could see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of star power kind of in the background, uh, you know, as part of the movie. Yeah, and I also forgot to write on here uh, Larry Hagelin, who was later on uh, an I Dream of Genie in Dallas. So he was the uh, played an interpreter um, for the president to speak with the Russians, and he he was great in this role. You can really see how uh, he'd have a, a role for the future in terms of his success on television. Uh, so this movie came out in 1964, near the end of the year. It was much uh, it was ready actually for a release earlier in the year, but we'll get through uh, some of that later on. Uh, but it it was fairly popular in terms of critical. Success. It was a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but it didn't do well in the box office, uh, basically overshadowed by Dr. Strangelove, which was released uh, before in January, as I mentioned earlier. Stanley Kubrick and the authors of the book Red Alert, which was what that movie was based off of, and Columbia Pictures, who had owned the rights to both of those movies, they sued the authors of the book Failsafe, and uh, these two college professors were accused of plagiarism. Basically, the shoe on the other foot uh, being having college professors accused of plagiarism instead of them accusing their, their students. The director um, said that the, the two movies had the same storyline but were completely different characters and tenor style, but nonetheless, uh, Columbia Pictures had the rights to them. Uh, it was settled out of court, and part of the settlement was that Dr. Strangelove would come out first and the uh, failsafe would come out later in the year, which didn't do very well because you have this movie first coming out, Dr. Strangelove, which is a satire, very comical, like dark comedy about it, uh, comes out earlier in the year. And then you have a very serious, serious tone uh, of a movie later on in the year. I don't think audiences responded very well to that. Uh, so that part of maybe why it didn't do so well. But And it came out in 1964. It was two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this was definitely the generation of of duck and cover drills. People very much focused on these things. You can also may have heard about the political ads since we're in the middle of political season here in the United States. 
the the Lyndon Johnson Daisy ad. Have you heard about this one? The Victoria or Joel, the the Daisy ad that was released against uh, Goldwater. Uh, yeah, and uh, I remember it fondly uh, from college. Actually, I took a a class on. I'm I'm by no means an expert, but I did take one class in political communications where it just looked at campaign advertising the entire semester, and that was actually one of the first we watched as far as being uh, uniquely important in an entire election. Catch us up, boys. What was the uh, what was the subject of the ad? So picture this: you have a, a little girl in a in a field of flowers. She's oh. holding a flower. And she's picking petals off, as, as as little girls and little boys are off to do in fields. And as she's picking off the flowers, you hear a countdown in the background, 10, 9, 8, 7. And basically, when she picks off the last flower, there's a freeze frame. It zooms into her face, and you have the political narrator at the end saying, these are the stakes if you elect Barry Goldwater, which is very uh, familiar in terms of the having someone who might be a little unstable having the access to the nuclear codes and the nuclear, uh, the red button. Uh, we're seeing similar ads right now uh, in this political season. So gives a sense of the context then and the context now. You also had Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, the fear of the Soviet Union, and, the, and communism was very strong. But you also had an anti-nuclear war movement in full swing that very much latched on to this movie and its depiction of the possibility of an accidental nuclear war um, being triggered outside of our control. And... You also had uh, Walter Matthau's character, uh, the professor. He is the political scientist and, and nuclear theorist, very much based on Herman Kahn, who was a real-life uh, Rand Corporation a theorist who founded the Hudson Institute. He also wrote a book called On Thermonuclear War. He was the similar basic inspiration for Dr. Strangelove himself. So you can kind of see more and more of these parallels between those two movies that were released that year. So he's a very stern, very logical character, doesn't care about how many people how many people die, only in terms of the numbers themselves. So you have a guy like that, I guess is somewhat painted as a villain in this movie, but you have him then painted as more of a comical character uh, in, in Doctor Strangelove. But some of the other crazy things about this movie, there is no score to the, to the film, no music, uh, except for some things you might hear in the background on the radio. Done in black and white on purpose. Um, lots of close-up. Basically, I know, Victoria, you're a big fan of theater and plays. It's done in a, in a very simple theater style. Lots of close-ups, lots of very simple sets that don't have a lot going on. Mostly just the characters themselves uh, doing dialogue with each other. Sure. I'm Well, I'm not a, an expert on direction. I'm not an expert on direction, but I would say it was directed as if it were a play more than if it were certainly not a musical no kick lines here but there uh, as, as tim was saying the simplicity i think um joel was commenting as we were watching the movie together there's uh was probably done on purpose so i won't steal his thunder on that thought the simplicity directly contrasted how complex the thoughts were Exactly. And I think you see that later on uh, in time, because in 2000, uh, there was a direct-to-TV live performance of this done by a number of big actors like George Clooney, Richard Dreyfuss, Noah Wiley, also from ER, and Brian Dennehy, who did this movie as like a play, live, direct to, to, to the American audience. Wait and a minute. You mean we could have done this and watched George Clooney instead? 
That's why I, I tricked you to come in to watch the 1964 one first. I apologize for that. Killing me, Tim. So now that we've already kind of introduced this film, Joel, why do you walk us through the plot? And of course, spoiler warning to anyone who uh, maybe not have seen this movie, maybe you weren't born in 1964 or you just never got around to it. It's kind of difficult to find. There's a version of it on YouTube, but I don't know if that's uh, as legal as it could be, but you can get this on Amazon and a couple other places, but you have to seek it out because very much Dr. Strangelove is the one people know about from this year, but this is one that we hope you'll enjoy. Joel, why don't you paint us a picture for for what happens in this uh, kind of dark film? So to start out, uh, let's set the scene a little bit. Um, I guess literally here, uh, setting the scene. So the movie essentially takes place in four different settings. Uh, one, a White House bunker where the president is uh, situated with a translator. Uh, second, a strategic air command uh, war room in Omaha, Nebraska. A Pentagon situation room slash conference room where a lot of generals and the Secretary of Defense are holed up, uh, kind of responding to the president's requests and, and questions. And then fourth, we have the actual cockpit of the bomber that is heading to uh, Moscow, which we learn is the, the ultimate target of these these bombers. So as we talk about kind of the the activities, it's interesting to note, you know, unlike a lot of the other movies we've done, Tim, where, you know, they're kind of running around the world, spies, the military, stuff like that. It's a pretty sp- uh, sparse uh, uh, list of locations. Um, so you kind of get situated uh, early into the movie w- with the cast of characters and the locations and you kind of move from there. Very, very different than the Peacemaker, which seemed to be they would they would get they were paid by the location of the number of different European and American locations that they filmed in. So, starting out with the movie, uh, it it first revolves around the Strategic Air Command facility in Omaha. Uh, we have a defense contractor and a member of Congress touring the facility. Uh, they're talking about the various gadgets and and. Uh, advanced technologies that, that congressional appropriations have made happen. And the, the military folks there are, are understandably bragging or, or highlighting all the great uh, sophisticated capabilities they now have because of, of the tools and the, the appropriations. Uh, while they're there, uh, the system, the, the giant war room, which is a lot like war games, that was the first thing that came to mind for me, uh, the, a giant screen in this uh, kind of big den with, you know, dozens of people running around at computer screens, etc. Or, or, or the big board from Dr. Strangelove. Yep, yep. So they're uh, kind of monitoring, you know, the United States and kind of globally what's going on in the world. And they uh, detect an unidentified flying object, a UFO, uh, that I believe was probably close to, I don't know, Maine, perhaps, in the, in I, the map. I think they were going to blow up Buffalo. Right. I got really, really offended by that. The yep. people of Buffalo are a treasure to this country. Yeah. Well, that, that may be why they were heading over there, right? Maybe the Russians I mean, were smarter than we thought then. A cultural, cultural you know, target. Uh, so they're, they're trying to figure out what this UFO is. Uh, they note in the discussion that this happens, you know, I think they say a half a dozen times a month. So at first they're not very uh, concerned. They say, oh, it's probably a commercial airliner that's lost power or a, a flock of, of birds. And I was thinking, wow, that's pretty casual how they talk about commercial airliners that have lost power. I would think if they lost power, they'd be, I don't know, slightly more concerned. But. That's, that's the FAA's problem. I guess so. You know, everyone's got their silos and whatnot and their various interests. Exactly. 
so after you know a couple minutes of of uh, stress, I guess, and and really, I, I feel like that it sets up the rest of the plot line, but it also kind of sets up just the standard operating procedures for the people at the SAC facility of what they do when they see a UFO. And you have the obligatory, you know, outsiders who come in, and then you have the military people who are, oh, well, let me explain to you what's going on here, because, you know, obviously you, the audience member, wouldn't know what's going on, so you need a convenient person alongside you in the movie who's also trying to figure out what's going on. But what's interesting is as those characters get introduced to all of us in that setting, we really see sort of the uh, military-civilian divide. The, the way that the um, folks in this portrayal um, are talking about what it means to have a member of Congress providing oversight. Uh, at one point, uh, you DC types might might find humor in this the way I, I chuckled, said, don't worry, gen-, the member of Congress said, don't worry, gentlemen, I'm not on appropriations. Yeah, it's a... Uh- it's it's fun to know kind of who your who your bosses are and, and who has the power of the purse. You think you might listen to them a little bit more. It seems like if they if the commanders knew that he was only on, I guess, it was a senator, so he might have been on, on the foreign relations committee. Um, they may not have listened to him as much. Certainly not giving him the VIP tour. So as they're trying to figure out what who or what the the UFO is, uh, the the film cuts to. Essentially, the Pentagon, where Walter Matthau's character, the professor, we'll, we'll call him, with the candlestick in the billiard room, uh, he's briefing a, a number, a, you know, kind of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, the Secretary of Defense, and they're talking about, you know, kind of more on a philosophical basis, you know, what are the uh, what are the boundaries of nuclear war, and you know, what's the proper scope. Uh, of, of fighting a war with nuclear weapons without them, etc. And while they're while they're talking, uh, they they also hear about the UFO. Uh, ultimately, the UFO is discovered to be a commercial airliner that briefly lost power. You know, no big deal, NBD. Uh, and so they, but before they were able to identify what the UFO was, you saw that the standard operating procedures is for. Uh, bombers that are in the air at any given point in time to automatically go to what's called these fail-safe points, which are these predetermined but kind of randomized points around the world that are close to kind of Russian airspace or, or I guess Soviet Union airspace so that if that UFO was indeed a an attack, that they would quickly be able to um, direct the bombers to their uh, Soviet Union targets. So when they realize that the UFO is not an actual attack by the Soviet Union. Or an alien. Or an alien. Yep, yep. Um, I, w- I was looking actually for some alien references throughout the movie, but we didn't get any. So that's Do they really say UFO? Oh, yeah. they Yeah, on a regular basis. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny because it's like, really? You know, billions of dollars and you still call them UFOs? Yeah. Well, in fairness, E.T. hadn't come out yet, so. <laughs> I guess that's true, yeah. Um, so once they figured out what the UFO is, everyone kind of, you know, literally kind of stands down. Everyone kind of walks away from the screen and says, okay, let's call off the bombers. We can kind of go back to situation, you know, normal. Um, but at the same time that that's happening, um, they encounter a mechanical failure over at SAC, the Strategic Air Command. And they think it's pretty routine, and so they're they're working on repairing it. They're literally pulling out, you know, one section of the computer, and then they they 
put in a new component. But uh, And the, the movie doesn't really describe it terribly well, but essentially when that error occurs, it actually sends a faulty signal to the bombers. Again, that's the fourth kind of setting for the movie, the bomber cockpit, telling them to actually go forward with their mission from the failsafe point. So the bombers were already on alert. They were already at their failsafe point waiting for a signal to stand down, but this mechanical malfunction actually tells them to go forward with their target. And they go through their process of authenticating the signal, which it is authenticated, and we learn that their target is Moscow. Because if you're going to go and drop a nuclear bomb in the Soviet Union, why not do it in Moscow? And one thing I'll mention just quickly right now, so it sets the stage later on uh, from we have the more nuclear-focused discussion, was the signal that gets sent on, on accident wasn't like someone talking. Uh, because supposedly the Russians, we find out later, were jamming the radio communications with some very secret, awesome radio jamming technology. Uh, I always think of that scene in Spaceballs where they say, are we jamming them? And then they throw j- like strawberry jam on the radar. Um, but whatever the secret radar jamming thing was, it prevented communication with SAC and the airplanes. And the only thing that got through was this false message, which was an electronic message. It was CAP. 811, which turns out was the secret code for go ahead and drop your bombs on Moscow. So at first, everyone down at the SAC or in the the Pentagon, they think everything's okay. They literally go back to their conversations uh, kind of about nuclear policy and kind of high-level discussions until they realize that the bomber has actually continued on its way and is actually starting to head towards Soviet Union airspace. Uh Uh-oh. Exactly. uh Uh-oh. So at that point, they get the president involved. So you cut to the White House where the president is going down into a bunker with a translator. And uh, this is one thing that I thought was interesting because unlike, I think, most other movies that you see that involve the president dealing with nuclear issues or nuclear catastrophes – uh, you literally just have the president and the translator only in this very small room. It's pretty claustrophobic. There, there's no uh, dozen advisors in suits. There's no generals right next to him. Don't exactly know why. My theory is that the the movie was trying to kind of show how vast government bureaucracies can get isolated, that everyone's kind of divided literally and figuratively from each other, which makes it harder to make all these tough decisions about how to use military force. But the the president and the translator are literally isolated in this bunker, basically just having a series of conference calls with the generals, uh, etc., trying to figure out what's happening. So uh, the president uh, and, and the military, they do their best to contact the bomber. As Tim notes, the radio interference makes it impossible to uh, touch base with them. Uh, after some failed attempts to actually shoot down their own planes... Um, the president regrettably gets on the line, calls the Soviet Union, confesses that they have accidentally ordered uh, some of their bombers to actually attack Russia. At that point, the Soviets, who you never actually see in the movie, you only hear them at a low volume background noise as the Russians are talking because the translator is really the bulk of the dialogue from the Soviet Union. So it's really uh, a conversation uh, between the, the translator and the and the president. So it, it, ma- it makes for an interesting uh, dynamic. 
ultimately what happens is Russia mobilizes its fighters. Uh, it sends its own uh, military folks out there to try to destroy the planes. They're able to destroy a few. Unfortunately, though, one fighter does get through. But again, you never actually see the dogfight because it's all kind of on a board, a giant screen where you see kind of simplistic graphics of like triangles running after squares. Yeah, it looks like an old Atari game. And it also kind of looks like, I know this is before Star Wars, but all of the fighters look like Y-Wing fighters because they look like Ys floating around. So I almost thought maybe it was a space dog fight, but no, it's just, yeah, it's just triangles and circles uh, fighting each other on a big board. One of the bombers has indeed gotten through. And the last-ditch effort that you see is the president is able to locate the wife of the fighter, or the, the guy who's the captain of the, the, the last bomber. Grady. Grady. Uh, has the, the wife try to talk sense into them and say, you got to turn around, we're okay, we're not at war, you know, you, you don't have to do this. Um, instead, though, he completely ignores her and basically turns off communications and continues on uh, with his his plan. This is just proof that everyone and their significant others should work out some kind of a system so that only they know uh, this piece of information in case one of them might be a clone or uh, an alien imposter or a Soviet imposter, something that we can kind of make sure that we that we know, like a safe word, uh, so that we know. Like my wife and I have a, have a thing where we go back and forth, and, and if I maybe think that she might be an imposter or maybe a robot dr- uh, drone, I ask her, you know, what is... Uh, what, what, what does it do when it rains on Sundays? And then she responds with, uh, the cat gets wet and cries. So it's very simple secret. Well, sh- we might need a new one now. So we'll work on that. But hopefully everybody's out there. If you don't take anything away from this podcast, have a safe word. Have a secret code uh, so you can get past these difficult situations. New- well, I was just going to say this might be a good time to uh, put in a, uh, a quick plug for your upcoming marital counseling podcast where you can uh, give people advice on proper relationships and having safe words. How to, how to avoid a nuclear war uh, one marriage at a time. You There's going to be a lot of Harry Potter that you're going to have to watch for this. Episode 23. Is your wife a robot? We'll find out. Anyway. I know his wife. She's not a robot. I feel like I need to be the defender here. She just made us popcorn, by the way, too, so... What, that's what a robot would do if it wants your trust. Exactly. Well, that's the kind of paranoia you see in the movie where they're like, oh, you know, it couldn't possibly have that kind of error. And then they go, well, what if they they know that it's too improbable to have an error? So then they're going to fake that it's an error. And then blah, blah, blah. After the spouse of the pilot is unable to convince the pilot to turn away, to, to stop what he's doing. Uh, the president sets in motion a plan, which is the only plan that uh, he thinks is going to be able to convince the Soviet Union that it was indeed an accident and that they shouldn't uh, retaliate with everything they have, with their missiles, with their bombers, etc. So what we see is the president actually direct one of his generals, uh, General Black or Blackie, uh, which they, they kind of set up early on in the movie where the president just randomly out of nowhere says, oh, yeah, I went to college with Blackie. And it's like, okay, I guess that sets up their relationship. But he sends Blackie out uh, on one of the, their own uh, bombers with the plan to drop a similarly sized nuclear bomb on New York City. 
as a way to show to the Soviet Union that if indeed Moscow blows up, that New York City will also be attacked by the United States military as a way to show that, yes, indeed, uh, this was an accident and to somehow bring some uh, balance to the harm that's inflicted on the world. And it's really sad, uh, not only in addition to the millions of people in New York City, but the president, Henry Fonda, needs to make that decision knowing that his wife, the first lady, is in New York City at that exact same time, as well as the pilot, Blackie, his wife and two children are in New York City at the exact same time. So I think the acting in this movie really does a great job of of showing the weight of that decision on those individuals um, and them feeling like they the only hand they have to play is following uh, through with that. But Victoria, as uh, someone who grew up near New York City, what do you think about this uh, as, a, as an option? Well, when this came up, there was a moment in time where I felt like I would imagine many of the characters do, where I said, I don't know what you could possibly do. And the suggestion by the president in his windowless bunker with only, I kept calling him Major Nelson because he was from My Dream of Jeannie, um, only the, he was the translator, only the two of them um, in face-to-face contact with each other, the decision was... If we end up bombing Moscow, I will bomb New York. And this goes back to that issue of trust that I brought up before. It was, how do you convince the Russians, the president's in this position, how does he convince the Russian premier that he is completely dedicated to wanting to find a a solution here and comes up with something that is unfathomable? There's an earlier scene where the professor is having a dinner party. It's early in the movie. It's how you're introduced to him. You meet him when he's in a tuxedo, everybody carrying goblets around, and women wearing dresses that, goodness, I wouldn't wear to dinner. but They were lovely. And there was a conversation about math, about if we had to, guys, correct me on the numbers here, but essentially if there were 100,000 versus 60,000. Oh, millions. Millions, excuse me. We're, t- we're talking nuclear stuff here. Nuclear we got to kick it up here. a notch. Wow. Uh, yeah. Carry the one. Okay. But the, the point was is that as we talk about the philosophy of war, which is a conversation that he has the next day more formally in the Pentagon, what is the cost? And at one point someone said, well, is it better to have uh, 60,000 rather than – or 60 million versus 100 million? Uh, isn't it worth saving the 40 million? So there's this, this conversation that goes on, which is very cold and calculating of numbers, which I thought was then interesting. There, at one point, that same professor did the math on how many folks would die in New York. And at that particular moment in time, and he didn't have to Google anything, which makes me suspicious, he said that he thought three million New Yorkers would die. What that means is that the president of the United States, by this decision, uh, as an act of trust... I think more than anything, was gambling the lives of three million Americans, including his wife, or three million plus one, as well as he's asking an, a trusted old friend to kill his family. All of that was at stake to simply say, I hope you believe us that this was a mechanical failure so that after these bombs drop, we don't drop anymore. That's why I was shocked that it was it was something that was brought up. So 
it, it must have. I, I mean, I would love to to have been in, a, in an audience where this was shown because I would love to have seen people's reactions to that because you know, 1964. This is not really a subject that uh, people people thought about very lightly. Obviously, earlier in the year, you had this satirical comedy um, come about where at the end of that movie, spoiler alert. I'm sh- if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've seen it already. But in Doctor Strangelove, everything explodes. There's a nuclear war that, by accident that then sets off a doomsday bomb in Russia, and the entire world explodes. But basically, it explodes, and in the background is a very happy song uh, talking about when you know when we'll see you again and all and all of that. Uh, so very, it's a different contrast to this one, which ends um, pretty quickly. Uh, soon as we talked about this scenario, um, Moscow does get destroyed. New York does get destroyed, and you see 10 images. And that's it. You see 10 images of everyday New Yorkers just out and about, really like one-second shots each time. And then you see that again, and this crazy screeching sound zooms into everybody's faces, and then it's over. It's basically the cheapest way to infer that a nuclear explosion happened, which I thought was interesting. It was cheapest in terms of the the cost of it. uh, Yeah, right. It was right. the Daisy ad. Mm-hmm. Only this yeah. time it was uh, kids playing basketball, folks walking into a, a drugstore, very normal images. That's the first time that the scenery isn't so simple as, as Joel was talking about. And I would say you're right. It's, it's, I'm glad you brought up the Daisy ad. It's that. So that's the movie. Um, uh, but so I think four things that I think would be really interesting to have a conversation here at this table about the nuclear things in the movie. Um, the first is basically an idea of, of truth in storytelling. The images that were displayed on the screen and the type of the fail-safe mechanism, how they portrayed how an accident and a malfunction could occur, has a little bit of controversy about whether or not that that's true or truly represents how this would have worked. But is that important? Uh, in the art that it's trying to tell. So I want to have a conversation about that. I'd also like to have a conversation about that idea that Victoria already brought up about trading cities. Is that something that um, would have actually happened? And would it have worked? And what are some of the other nuclear strategy discussions that we see in this movie very briefly, but are those real conversations that people have about these topics? Also, how does the movie portray, on a simply technical level, strategic air command? Um, 20 megaton bombs that are on these bombers, and the Vindicator bombers themselves. Are those real? Uh, did they decide to use to make something up or to use a real images? And then finally, uh, quick discussion about something I don't think we've covered yet on the podcast, but they talk about the Vindicator bombers having these bloodhound air-to-air missiles that are nuclear-tipped. So an airplane would fire a nuclear missile at another airplane, to knock it down. Crazy to think about, but is that real? You know, spoiler alert, yes, but we'll go through a little bit about that. So first, truth in storytelling. Uh, This is the conversation I think would be interesting. Um, In 1964, Strategic Air Command, which is is abbreviated to SAC, had 464 bombers and 107 missiles on 15-minute alerts. If there was a warning of an incoming attack, in 15 minutes you would get the entire squadron of your bomber fleet up into the air and ready to move on to their targets. So there you have pilots waiting next to their planes, the planes are fueled, and everybody's ready to go. But that eventually developed into what we see in the movie, which are these airborne alerts. And I'll let the uh, 
Sack Historian, the official historian of Strategic Air Command, uh, in a 1988 report, tell you about why the airborne alert system was, was set in place. So I'll quote from here really quickly. Strategic Air Command planners had not been content to place their forces merely on ground alert. They had developed a concept for airborne alerts. As General Thomas Power, the SAC commander at the time, had alluded to, his command was keeping bombers aloft at all times. The command had been uh, testing a B-52 airborne alert concept and by 1961 uh, had flown more than 6,000 alert sorties. And he's quoted as telling Congress, I feel strongly that we must get on with this airborne alert. We must impress Mr. Khrushchev that we have it and that he cannot strike this country with impunity. So on, 19, on January 18, 1961, Strategic Air Command was finally able to announce that B-52 bombers were placed on conducting airborne alert training and that their air crews responded favorably to the airborne alert training. One crew member exclaimed, Gee, I just think of all the money we could save because we could do away with the Army, the Navy, and the rest of the Air Force. So shortly after becoming president, JFK announced a new defense posture, and his purpose was to strengthen the nation's military position in light of Soviet technological advances and worldwide political initiatives. The new posture had direct bearing on Strategic Air Command because it raised the ground alert level to one half of the command's bombers, and later on, SAC attained a 50% alert in 1961. Uh, the logic is, is simple. If you keep the bombers always in the air, the Russians would be unable to bomb them when they're on the ground. And all of our delivery systems would be in place to be able to respond. Um, if you know that you can't hit me first without me retaliating, you might be a little less likely to start the fight in the first place. ICBMs, the Intercon Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, and submarines with missiles weren't really a thing yet. They were there, but they weren't sophisticated enough, so we very much relied on our bombers in the 50s and the early 60s to be able to uh, deliver our fancy nuclear bombs. Uh, and according to the, the book Command and Control, which we quote almost on, a, on an episode basis, continuous airborne alert patrols more or less ended in January 1968. So they only went about 10 years, uh, mostly due to uh, the cancellation was due to rising cost. You can imagine how expensive that is uh, to keep airplanes fueled and flying and the number of personnel you would need so that they wouldn't burn out. That was uh, very, very expensive. And there was also a crash uh, in of a B-52 loaded with nuclear bombs at Thule Air Force Base in Greenland. Uh, which really p made people, that was the ultimate nail in the, co in the uh, airborne alert coffin. It also didn't help uh, the program that many B-52s were needed actually to bomb targets uh, conventionally in Vietnam. The SAC ground alert program, however, was un left unchanged, and planes were still loaded with fuel and nuclear bombs ready to take off the tarmac in about 15 minutes. Um, especially also at the same time, submarines and missiles got a lot better, and it made the bomber wing that that hair trigger bomber wing very redundant. And now I would like to guys to get your opinion on this. Um, in terms of a plot device, we see a lot of movies where bombers are the ones that are on on their way to a target and we need to then be able to act. And I think this is a, an interesting uh, idea instead of missiles. Uh, and it's talked about a lot in this command and control book, which I'll just quickly quote, is as a plot device in novels and films, an airborne alert gone awry could provide suspense. A stray bomber could need at least an hour to reach its target and would be plenty of time to tell a good story. 
But one of the real advantages of the Shijik Air Command was that their crews could be contacted by radio and, to, and told to abort if the GO Command was somehow a mistake. Ballistic missiles pose a different, uh, far greater risk of unauthorized or accidental use because once they're launched, there was no calling them back because they don't have abort features, which is something you don't see portrayed correctly in a lot of films we've already covered. You'll see a missile go up in the air and then someone will push a button to blow it up. Would you guys, have you guys seen examples of this or, or think that, that the bombing, the bombers on their way is like a, a good plot device um, for a story like this? I think about how cockpits are portrayed in in other movies and in in many there's this thought that if you're in that setting there's the conflict that that Joel mentioned about being the person that actually has to carry it out even when the president of the United States and your wife are screaming at you. <laughs> but but there's also this this thought of it's very much the good guy or the bad guy. And what what's so interesting about uh, this film I think is that you all of that gets turned on its head. This is a contemporary reference, which might not make a lot of sense, but I had a flashback to Avatar. Stick with me for a second. I remember when the when the film came out, what, some of the conversation that came out afterwards was you'd realize you were cheering against the humans and cheering against the Americans. There's a moment in this movie where you're cheering for Americans to be shot down. In fact, at one point in the Strategic Air Command, once the first one gets shot down, people jump up and down. Uh, there's cheering. And one of the, I believe he's a colonel, uh, I was thrilled this happened. If not, I was about to start yelling at, at, at Tim. I like to be an engaged audience member. Uh, the, the colonel uh, told his fellow airmen, uh, sit down. He yelled at them. He scolded them. Sit down. This is not a football game. Uh, of all the lives that were lost before those nuclear devices went off, all of them we counted were Americans. And it's an interesting thing to do to an audience, uh, particularly in this time of heightened patriotism, um, to have that be the emotional pull that it, that it has on you. Yeah, in this, in this movie, very much the, the military, except for one or two people, but even then... Um, the military are the people who seem to express a lot of compassion. And it's the civilian, uh, Walter Matthau's professor character, who is the cold calculating, we need to go ahead and do and do a war uh, figure. And I, I think the movie does a good job of setting up at the beginning the fact that all these people have families, the military commanders like Blackie, and even the one who later on, this uh, Casio, who, who tries to basically do a mutiny at Strategic Air Command. He refused to cooperate with the Russians to, to shoot down the bombers. You even see at the beginning of the movie him and his family. Uh, he's embarrassed by his family who are poor and appear to be a drunk um, and maybe even a drug abusers. And he, he's very embarrassed that his higher uh, up officer had to see him in that circumstance. But you, you get a sense of someone that's internally conflicted, someone who is maybe unsure during this very uh, heightened time. And you see that, that these that these are real people. And you also see it on the other side. There's a scene later on where you see General Bogan uh, talking to his counterpart in Russia about their time spent in, in the UK in London and about how beautiful that town was. And they shared a moment there. And you see uh, Bogan looking at a picture of the, the Russian counterpart's family. 
And you get a sense of that, that this is a, a real thing and it's not just about numbers. It's not just a numbers game. For, for a lot of these people, there's, there's an emotional factor to it. And you, we will have this conversation at the next point about whether or not that's a good thing to think about when you think about nuclear war and war in general. Uh, but it's certainly something that I think audiences should understand. But back to that photo, that's the only time you see the face of a Russian. All of this is about the conflict that happens within just the United States. And we hear it, but we don't see it. Which, which I thought was... I, I took to be intentional by the the filmmakers to further increase the feeling of isolation on the part of policymakers. So, I mean, it's seen most uh, starkly in the president, who's literally down in the bunker, and his only you know way way to communicate with the world is through that one single phone. Um, but I, you know, if you, if you are in the military uh, in that kind of situation, especially at that time where communications technology was not like what it is today, um, I would have to imagine that you would have felt pretty isolated where you're looking up at a screen that's, you know, a bunch of triangles and you're like, well, what's really going on? And, and you're having to make these life and death uh, decisions in a, you know, certainly a less than perfect uh, a world of information uh, where you're you're not seeing you know the Russians you're not seeing the humans on the other side of your decision making um, which you know in my mind heightened the tension to say you know you're you're having to make all these decisions and you feel kind of powerless because you're stuck in this box and you, you can't really see what's going on. But it also strengthened. I I agree that that was probably a direct choice by the by the filmmakers. I also think it helped flesh out this idea of human versus machine and the systems mm -hmm. we create versus the people who um, create them and carry them out. I, I think back to that photo that exists of our national security team watching when the bin Laden raid was carried out and how much conversation, just in a contemporary way, we all want to learn who said what, what happened in the room. That's a discussion in this current political climate as well. With the president in the back to the movie now, with the president in a room by himself, there's no what did the national security advisor say? Where was the secretary of state when you're on the phone with with a foreign dignitary? Mm -hmm. Where was anybody from uh, the State Department or I mean, let's go through the alphabet soup that is that is usually involved in these decisions. So I don't know that it was just isolation of who makes the choices, but it really helped bring home the point to me of, are we stuck in the systems we create? And particularly when technology is a part of that, what does that mean? And I think that's probably a part of the discussion these filmmakers wanted us to have. You're on the right podcast if you want to get into those kind of weeds and uh, in terms of what, whether or not things are portrayed correctly and, and if that has a meaning uh, more than just whether or not things are right or wrong or what type of message uh, the movie may be trying to portray. So let's get into some of that system that Victoria was talking about, this fail-safe system that Joel explained when he talked about the plot um, that's basically at the, at the center and also the title of today's movie. As, to, as uh, discussed in military historian L. Douglas Keeney's book, 15 Minutes, which I'll recommend at the end of the episode, in a remarkable feat of problem-solving in 1957, Rand's Albert Woolsetter visualized what he would call fail-safe. He knew that SAC would launch its bombers within minutes of any warning, and what puzzled him was how those bombers might be recalled if the warning turned out to be false. 
He had had no issue with launching the bombers, but he saw numerous situations that could confuse air crews and potentially lead to catastrophic consequences. Against endless combinations of all methods to recall the bombers, he found fault with each one of them until he found the one way to recall the bombers with absolute certainty. And I'll let him describe it. Initial response does not include the launching of a retaliatory force without the possibility of recall. Initial decisions are preparatory in nature. By a fail-safe procedure, we mean one in which the bombers will return after reaching a pre-designated point en route unless they receive an order to continue. Unless they receive an order to continue being the operative word. Failsafe was not the receipt and confirmation of a GO code, as has become popularized. Rather, it was the absence of a GO code. To Woolsetter, the quiet of a silent radio would ensure the bombers turned back. This idea was so catchy that the president of, the, of a newspaper, uh, the United Press, Frank Bartholomew, wrote a very uh, popular story at the time on this failsafe concept, inviting his readers to imagine that they were inside a B-52 that had just received the 15-minute warning and was now streaking towards a, a target in Russia. Failsafe, he said, would allow the bombers to be launched with, uh, without a clear picture of the threat, and with the bombers safely away, false alarms could be confirmed and sorted out during the several hours of flight before they reached their turnaround points. And I quote, The next time you see a vapor trail in the sky, remember, the bombs on board and join a silent prayer that the mission will come to naught, that it will turn around under this rules of failsafe. In 1958, unfortunately, the uh, name failsafe was actually uh, changed because it was easily mocked as an idea because how can you have absolute certainty that an accident won't occur? They changed the name to positive control a little a little better because it, it tried to show that there was something in control with this. It was something that we, we had our handle on it. It's not failsafe, but we have our handle on it. But because of the pop- popularity of this term already in these press reports, the name stuck, and is especially after this movie and Dr. Strangelove uh, came about. But as popular as it was, there's a little bit of, of a problematic uh, portrayal of this movie, and this is where it gets tricky. Failsafe is a communication system that was designed to function the absence of radio contact with bombers, unlike in the movie where their inability to communicate with the bombers should have had ultimately no effect on their ability to go forward. Uh, Strategic Air Command um, developed a system of doing two-way communication uh, to be able to, to be able to discuss a system of, of communication to be able to contact with the bombers. These emergency action codes uh, were created in 1957, and this is the important part. These were verbal communications. It was not a code electronically that was sent. It wasn't something that you would send a CAP 811 code message that you would then look in your little binder and open it up and find out what the code was. This was system relied on radios, but at the time was sensed that they could not be jammed, and it was a verbal communication. There was a series of steps that needed to take place, multiple steps. So the way that it's portrayed in the movie, in terms of one signal malfunction accidentally sending the right go code, that really is not how the system would, would have actually worked in, in real life. But in some, and that's why in some critics have actually said Dr. Strangelove, which is about the unauthorized use of a nuclear weapon by a rogue commander at, at Strategic Air Command, rather than a technical malfunction, is a more accurate depiction of nuclear war fighting, even though it was a satire. And a lot of people have brought this point up when this movie came out. The philosopher Sidney Cook at the time said the movie was an emotionally surcharged political track that favored nuclear disarmament using an intellectually scandalous plot device that tested the sober limits of scientific credibility. 
Ouch, I would not want to see that uh, press clipping on my desk. Jack Wilson of The New Republic lambasted the, the book's authors when it came out, saying they haven't done their homework, and instead wrote a book that uh, plays on the deepest fears of humanity with falsities and distortions. And others, though, have defended it, uh, the technical errors, since the movie serves a higher purpose, that is, to warn Americans about the danger of nuclear weapons, especially leaning so heavily on uh, computers and automation. I want to have a, a, a conversation about this amongst us. Is it okay for details to get totally off if they serve a, a higher purpose? Is there a public service message or uh, any sort of art as the goal? Uh, so what do, you, what do you guys think about this? If What is essentially the... Uh, what is the responsibility of, of, a, of a filmmaker? Well, I guess the, the problem for me is, um, you know, in, in theory, it might be okay to have some flaws in the way you present a story or present a narrative. And yet the, the ultimate aim of the narrative or the, the ultimate argument you're trying to make is valid. So, you know, there might be objective flaws, but you can still make a, a credible argument. You know, the, the movie is, you know, obviously saying, you know, there are these are the dangers of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons or more broadly, uh, you know, the dangers of military technology that's, that's not properly reined in. You can make that point even though there are these potentially obvious uh, flaws. I guess the, the concern I have, especially when this movie came out, when this was definitely a, a regular topic of conversation, is you threaten to undermine an otherwise valid argument or otherwise valid critique if the flaws in constructing that critique are so apparent that the people receiving that message couple the flaws mm. with the actual message and then actually start to think that your message is actually flawed because you know the way you constructed your argument was so so bad i guess so it's it's not so much you know there are plenty of action movies or or, or you know spy movies and stuff like that where you know, they, they obviously uh, take some artistic license and they, you know, throw a lot of stuff in there that that wouldn't actually happen. But ultimately, they're trying to make a point and you can still respect that. But, you know, I could see, you know, get to a point of a point of no return uh, or past the, the failsafe where, you know, someone will actually be completely dismissive of your entire argument because of the, the gaping holes in the plot line or, or the, you know, the plot devices. What do you think, Victoria? Is it OK to fib a little bit if your end was is pretty good at the end? I have pretty strong feelings about the fact that there is an inherent power in communications. And the method you use in communicating, all of them have different sets of rules. The power of this movie, I think, came in the what if. There were moments in time where even in Strategic Air Command, they would say, we thought about this scenario, we couldn't have pictured this particular one. And to talk more specifically about this film... The conversations that were had within the Pentagon, for example, on what war can, should be, what is acceptable, or is it appropriate to target civilians, I think those are real valuable uh, questions to ask, not only in policy and military circles, but to the nation as a whole. All of that said, though, there are things... I'm not an expert in, in nuclear policy. It's one of the many reasons that I'm friends with the great Tim Westmeyer. And I'll tell you that from my own experiences in life, I'm now connected with some folks that feel like they have to push back on stereotypes that have come in in pop culture. I have a lot of friends who are veterans, and they're very concerned about the way that veterans are 
perceived in film. Crazy, homeless, drunk, whatever the case may be. The truth is, is that the veteran unemployment rate is actually lower than that of the American population. But every time those narratives come out, it hurts their ability, they feel, when they're in a job interview. What is the person across the desk mm. thinking? And so I've become friends with a number of folks at an organization called Got Your Six, and I'm going to plug them very purposely because they're very good people, Got Your Six, that works with what is the narrative that is out there, um, not only amongst news media and things where we would hope that facts are grounding our conversations, but also in, in more lighter forms of communication like Hollywood. These things matter, and there is, as I said, a, a weight to communications, and that means it's our job as viewers to um, consider that. But if I was supposed to be able to know as a non-nuclear expert that some of these things were just wrong, I'm sorry, I'm not that good of a consumer of a movie. Even after this, it was informative to listen to Tim and Joel as they were, were talking through this. So did it affect my thinking without me knowing all of the facts? Yes, it did. And I'm not in a particularly emotionally vulnerable time that was the 1960s. That said, uh, uh, Tim, Joel, and I, a little bit of a disclaimer, we all know each other from a past life where we all touched politics in one way or another. These things happen. And it, it becomes on us as, as uh, the role on us as citizens to kind of know the difference here. But again... Uh, that's one tool in propaganda. I've been thinking about um, the founding of the country a lot more and, and what some of the conversations were. Full disclosure, yes, I know every word in the musical Hamilton now. <laughs> um, but, it, but it made me hearken back to, and I was just telling Tim over the past weekend, I had the pleasure of visiting Monticello with my social studies teacher father. What were the types of conversations that happened at that time when we decide the difference between freedom versus not one thing I learned from, again, social studies teacher dad, it's a time that our country was really what, wondering whether or not we should rebel from England. About a third of the folks were loyalists. About a third were on the side of George. And about a third were indifferent. So when we talk about the power of communications and what these sorts of films can do, know that even now when we tell the story that everybody must have been waving the flag and high-fiving Betsy Ross, that mm -hmm. wasn't actually the case. Even back then, a third didn't have real strong feelings. What's the difference between information, asking probing questions, and being manipulative? We're always going to have to ask those questions. So I think for a movie like this, it's especially important uh, because it, there there is a sense from watching this that the movie has a political purpose, and you can kind of get that a sense of that. Uh, one of the the producers, the main producer of this movie, Max Youngsting, who is, is a is a, a renowned figure in Hollywood, um, was definitely also a member of a group called Sane at the time. Uh, Sane, which was it stands for the National Committee on a Sane Nuclear Policy. I guess that was before abbreviations had to stand for what the letters at the beginning of each word. But the same committee uh, were, were potentially activists against uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And this movie has a message behind that that I think is it's also in Dr. Strangelove, but it's not as um, not as on the nose. But both of them did need at the end of it, uh, essentially put in by the Columbia Picture Studio, uh, an end credit that said that the producers of this film, 
wish to stress that it is the stated position of the Defense Department and the United States Air Force that a rigidly enforced system of safeguards and controls ensure that occurrences such as those depicted in this film cannot happen, which I thought was a fascinating thing to include right at the end of the credits, because I don't know if someone who watches this movie would look at that and go, oh yeah, never mind, I think we're all set. It's more probably like, wait, what's going on? Are we being lied to? Uh, so I, I, I kind of personally think that there's ways to tell a malfunction story or an unauthorized launch story without necessarily having to change the rules of the game. Because I think that their point, is, I think Victoria and Joel got on this. This is a what-if movie. This is a movie that believes ahead of time that no matter what systems you put in place, however complex they are, they will fail. And because the consequences of this are nuclear war, extinction of all humanity, just loss of millions of people and their lives and their future and future generations, that it's something that you maybe don't want to trust to any system, whether you believe it's per perfect or not. I think that's a real debate to have uh, in this. this is why I think this movie has strong resonance today, even when these technical errors uh, get pointed out by nerds. So the second uh, area I want to talk about, we've already kind of briefly addressed, but it's this idea of trading trading cities as an idea of, of producing trust between the United States and the Soviet Union. Because when Henry Fonda is faced with this nearly impossible situation, how do you convince the Russians that the bomber was not a real attack and that there aren't more weapons that there aren't more weapons on the way that's a real dilemma that has occurred over the the history of not only warfare but in, in particular in terms of nuclear warfare you need to be able to show that you have a reliable and usable nuclear weapon force that can be delivered by bombers or missiles or in in, in submarines in sufficient quantities to get past the other side's defenses and destroy of whatever the other side values whether it be populations industries cities their beach homes whatever you think that they value so that they don't uh, attack you first or they don't engage in conventional warfare against against you if this is your way of deterring that and it's very difficult to be able to do that. There's a lot of steps that are involved in that process, but you also have to be able to show that you can respond if you're attacked first. There just can't be a sense that all of these steps that you need to go through uh, to be able to go through with an attack, such as you know what we call the command and control system, you need to be able to prove that that works. Uh, technically, uh, communication between individuals uh, down the chain of command, that there aren't going to be people who are going to break, break loose if the Russians pretend that uh, if the Russians call someone up and say, hi, this is your wife, please don't uh, launch, hey, sorry, bye, you have to be convinced that they're not actually going to fall for that. So you create these systems, but these systems in the movie, as you see, ultimately may be the things that, that lock you into an inevitable path to war. And there's also, a, on the flip side, there's a real challenge of convincing the other side that your weapons or actions are merely defensive, or if they're designed to deter rather than as a first strike of aggression. And this gets more complicated as you do more than just two actors, because as we know today, and even back then, it's not just the United States and the Soviet Union. It's the United States, the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, uh, India, Pakistan, France. Like, you have a lot of different people, and each of those actors, when you add another person into it, gets more complicated, especially when you think about uh, how do you deter against one person without convincing the other third party that that's actually directed against them. And you see other major debates in the movie. Every minute we wait works against us. Now, Mr. Secretary, now is when we must send in a first strike. And if we act now, right now, our casualties will be minimal. You know what you're saying. 
believe that communism is not our mortal enemy? To justify murder. Yes. To keep from being murdered in the name of what? To preserve what? Even if we do survive, what are we? Better than what we say they are? What gives us the right to live, then? What makes us worth surviving, Vodicella, that we are ruthless enough to strike first? Yes! Those who can survive are the only ones worth surviving. The idea of what is the aim of war, and is a nuclear war different than a conventional warfare? Is it fundamentally different? Uh, can you fight a limited war? Today we have these debates uh, in Washington. Uh, and we refer to them as damage limitation uh, with smaller nuclear weapons. We need to build nuclear weapons that aren't just city-destroying, but are basically can destroy bunkers and uh, smaller, smaller weapons that can be used without larger radiation. Uh, effects and if we have those things, we can give the president more options for sub uh, sub. We can ha give the president more options so that they don't have to escalate every time there's a nuclear war to world-ending circumstances. And also, whether or not nuclear weapons are different than firebombing entire cities to 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 ultimate destruction, or even different than chemical or biological warfare. What is the role of military in these strategies? Do they set policy by telling civilians actually what they can do, or do they have a role to, um, to, to to push back on some of these different ideas? And also, does making nuclear war more efficient, i.e. easier to undertake, make war more or less likely in an area of deterrence? So I don't, I don't know if this is kind of a hard to debate to have amongst uh, people that maybe aren't engaged in this on a day-to-day -day basis, but do any of those debates seem like they uh, – have you seen some of these conversations take place either in the press or maybe maybe you studied some of them in school. Like I know we personally studied all of these very closely in graduate school, but in in my day to day life, no one talks about is there a difference between nuclear war and conventional war. It's kind of assumed that there's a difference, but you have to work through the logic of that. Like, can you? Would anyone want to take the the baton here and explain what's the difference between a, a, the use of a nuclear weapon that destroys a million people at one time or a series of bombs? all set off that destroy a million people. Like, what are the differences in how we think about this? Because we used to not think about them differently. The Air Force in the 50s and the 60s thought nuclear weapons were just big bombs. And now we think about them fundamentally different to the point where we say, do you really want to have a presidential candidate X or Y have the control of these weapons? Now I sound like your political science dad. You do sound like my political science dad. But I think there's another question that a lot of, that Americans, um, I, I think about, a uh, former boss of mine who used to talk about the conversations that happen around the kitchen table. I, I don't know that it's as much a conversation about what type of weapons exist, but in this day and age where we're talking about terrorism versus wars that we actually declare, hmm. that in itself is different. I, I don't know that it gets to the point where, um, you know, around a kitchen table, we're having the conversation about the difference between chemical, biological, or or whatever else it may be. I would hope not. I, it really ruins a meal. I, I know. We're going to need more pizza, guys. But there's also a question about, you know, who makes these decisions as policymakers. There are, there are fewer people serving now in, in Congress who have ever been to war than ever before. Um, so some of these conversations come up because of things like the Daisy ad. Hmm. But there's another question about, you know, why do... So through that narrative, I think a lot of that may define 
the kind of knowledge that happens around the kitchen table. And my apologies to all of you, all of you who are listening, who think about this in in much more serious and knowledgeable ways and uh, understand what Tim says more than I do sometimes. Why do average Americans think about them differently? Why can you say should this presidential candidate have have nuclear codes? Where did the knowledge that got into the the public come from? Did it come from films like this? Did it come from Daisy ads? What else informed those decisions? Um, how how do we think about those things? Do we look at the science or do we look at the fear? And I think this movie, in terms of history of, of, of America, is really fascinating. So it came at a time where basically, according to UC San Diego film and communications professor Joyce Evans, she wrote a book called Celluloid Mushroom Clouds, Hollywood and the Atomic Bomb, how Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove were the last of the two movies to target this public anxiety about nuclear weapons that occurred after the Cuban Missile Crisis for quite a long time. Uh, the, in August 1963, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited testing above ground, was signed. And the iconic mushroom cloud, which everybody understood what nuclear war was and the potential for these things to happen, the awe of seeing this gigantic image, this gigantic uh, feature that is man-made, then be put onto an American city, those concerns about radiation and arms races, they lessened for a lot of people because you didn't have that visual rep- representation anymore. And she writes that the nuclear theme largely disappeared from film and television, emerging very rarely in fiction. And this opinion was echoed by another professor at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, Paul Boyer, who wrote that between 1963 and 1980, when Ronald Reagan was elected, and his uh, nuclear Star Wars strategic defense initiative programs uh, were brought nuclear weapons back into the public mindset. He refers to that period as the years of the big sleep on, on nuclear topics. So you can see that in public polling. Again, since it's election season here, we'll talk about public polling. A 1959 Gallup poll found that 64% of Americans thought that nuclear war in 1959 was the nation's number one most urgent problem. But by 1964, two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the numbers dropped from 64% to 16%. And soon afterwards, the topic was dropped from the survey completely because it didn't poll and didn't register enough for the American public, which I think is kind of crazy to think about. Two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, people no longer think that nuclear weapons and nuclear war was uh, an, an urgent problem. There was other problems like Vietnam that obviously got raised above uh, nuclear war, but it really shows that um, public perceptions matter about not only the events that are occurring externally, but messaging like uh, movies and things that keep these things uh, in, in public mindset. Is it a cause and effect relationship? Or do they just simply... Well, but, you know, and I, I don't know the a lot of the specifics. It's been a while since I, I studied them, but I mean... In the, the, the years that followed the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, you had kind of a, a slow but gradual de-escalation, right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways of, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States got better at, at communicating, you know, to Victoria's point. Improved their dialogue, not just on nuclear issues, but as two superpowers uh, that were going at it. So, I mean, they remain kind of locked in struggle, if you will, but um, I mean... I, my sense was that with the Cuban Missile Crisis coming to a head like it did, um, it, 
it opened the door for progress in the years that followed to actually de-escalate. So in my mind, I mean, it makes – I can understand why it would have fallen in, in the – You see now a lot of the conversation about nuclear weapons isn't about whether or not Russia and China are going to get into a shooting war with the United States with nuclear weapons. You think about it in terms of terrorism, in terms of non-state actors. Will they be able to steal a weapon? Will they be able to buy a weapon from some nefarious state? Will they be able to, to find a weapon that gets stolen from uh, the, the surplus of, of Russian weapons at the end of the Cold War? Like That's what you see reflected in some of the other movies that Joel and I have covered in this podcast, whether it be True Lies or Broken Arrow. Um, a lot of what you see in... Uh, in the American media now, in terms of presidential debates, is whether or not nuclear weapons are too expensive, whether or not we need to maybe get rid of a couple uh, delivery systems, or whether or not we should um, maybe not build build new ones. Like that's a conversation I think people have, but it's not usually placed in terms of a whether or not this is a bad thing in terms of war happening from the the state to state level. It's this is too expensive, and we need to secure the number that we have, get it down to a smaller number, so we can do a better job of keeping track of them. Uh, those are some of the debates that you see, I, and I think those ebb and flow, and maybe they're so complicated that that people uh, don't focus on them. But they're certainly they're certainly in the in the media. So then, Tim, let me ask: Is the question of fail safe for today? Then not so much about the systems in place for deploying these weapons, but the system in place for protecting these weapons. Is that the fail safe that? we as American citizens should be most worried about. I certainly think that that is a, a point that was raised very strongly by the current Obama administration when he first came in. Not only did he have the New START Treaty, which reduced the number of deployable weapons um, and deliverable weapons to a, a smaller number um, than before, but it also, one of his big priorities was to secure loose and vulnerable nuclear material around the world. And a lot of that was nuclear material that w- was found in research reactors. And that certainly has been what I think the last couple of years the public may have seen. I know Rachel Maddow did a big piece of this a couple years ago when I was working at the State Department. We were pretty excited about that where she, I believe it was in Mexico, uh, she went down and, and watched the, the last of this highly enriched uranium being taken out of a reactor, put onto a U.S. Uh, military plane, and then flown back to the United States to be secured and or downblended. So I think that this is certainly where people are thinking about it. That's the fail-safe that we see today. But I really don't think that, I think people still are concerned about nuclear weapons. Um, it certainly becomes the litmus test for whether or not you want to elect a president uh, on the issue of national security. Do you trust them with nuclear weapons? And that's a conversation that both sides of the political aisle and all sides, I guess, of different parties have. Well, I, I mean, just taking a step back, I think if we're just talking about kind of modern day debates, you know, I think, do you want this person to have their finger on the nuclear trigger? or have the nuclear codes. I mean, that is a proxy. I, I, I don't think, at least today, it's a direct commentary on the state of nuclear threats. Mm. It's more of a a proxy for, do we want this person to have the ultimate responsibility? Ultimately, you get to the point where you're, you're just trying to make the general point, which, you know, and going back to kind of the discussion on failsafe, you know, the... You know, it's it's making the broader point of you, nuclear weapons constitute in in some ways kind of the highest responsibility that a president directly bears as far as being able to you know direct the usage of those weapons and and kind of influence the most number of lives in a you know in, in a given moment of time. <laughs> 
So this is some heavy stuff, uh, and I think we should break up a little bit uh, of our conversation here by playing a quick little game. So I love the names of the different things. Hang, hang on, you're going to be the host of this game? Yes. I don't. Would you like to be Drew Carey or Bob Barker? <laughs> uh, well, I do like to spay and neuter pets, so maybe I'll be Bob Barker. Um, so this game, uh, I love the, the names that this movie gives to all the different weapon systems. You have things like the Vindicator or the Bloodhound air-to-air missile. I heard that for the first time while watching this movie. I thought it was pretty funny because Vindicator and Bloodhound sound to me a lot like names of the Hasbro-owned to- uh, Transformer toy series. Vindicator, Bloodhound, they sound a lot like Transformers. So after a bit of research, I want to play a game called Is This Name the name of a nuclear weapon delivery system, or a transformer. So, the game is simple. I will give... uh, You're going down, Victoria. I will go back and forth. I will give you a code name, and you will tell me whether or not it refers to a real-life nuclear weapon delivery system, such as a bomber or a missile, uh, or whether or not it is a transformer. Uh, had the Hasbro toy line, cartoon Michael Bay movies, that Joel is very, very fond of. Purpose oh, raise the expectations. Sure. Yeah. Well, the purpose oh, of this is twofold: one, to show how similar sounding these different things are, but also uh, how much of a transformer nerd Joel is compared to um, a more regular person in Victoria. So, start off easy. This is just a practice round uh, to Victoria. Megatron. Is that a transformer or a weapon delivery system? You know, I did see the movie, so even I know that's a transformer. Which, by the way, I'll say is one of the best scores, movie scores out there. That there is strong plug for that. It's it's pretty good. Uh, Minuteman to Victoria. Oh, is it still for me? Transformer or a missile system, or the bomber or whatever. Oh, I'm gonna give that one to the military. That is correct. So now let's get a little is more. There, comp- is there a bell? There's no dinging. We'll we'll put that in the in I want post. Some sound effects here, Tim. We'll put that in post. Okay. So, um, so let's keep let's go let's go forward. By the way, if any uh, special effects company wants to sponsor our podcast, we'd be more than happy to uh, incorporate your uh, ding or or the guy from Police Academy that can make all the funny voices. So now this one's to Joel. Slingshot. Uh, that's a transformer. That is correct. Skiff. Skiff. Military. It is. It is a missile system, the, the Russian SSN-23 submarine missile system. So Joel scores two points. Victoria. My first two didn't count. Oh, man, pressure's on. I mean, you got the easy ones, so I mean, come on. Well, you're the expert, Mr. Now I'm going to lower expectations. Go ahead. Savage. I'll give that one to the military. That is correct. It is a uh, the code name for the SS. 13 Russian missile. Sawfly. That sounds like a transformer. It is the name of a Russian SSN 8 missile. Can't you see Bumblebee having a How fight with Sawfly? Come on. Everyone knows that would about be a, the such a great fight. Joel, to you. Jericho. Uh, that's military. That is correct. That is a missile in Israel. Crosshair. Uh, that sounds like a transformer. That is also correct. Yep, yep, yep. So four to one. Plenty of time to catch up. Plenty of time to catch up. He's got 86 of these. So <laughs> I hope you're ready. Oh, man. Jetfire. 
I'll give that to the Michael Bay crowd. That is correct. That is a Transformer. Shockwave. Military. Transformer. Ooh. Four to two. First stumble. To Joel. Oh man, there's another page. Joel, this is like our next week. (laughs) To Joel. Sideways. Sideways. Is that... Is that a Transformer? It is a Transformer. But what about Titan? Oh, that's military. That's nuclear. Okay, that one might be a little easy. That is a missile, a U.S. missile. So that now is, I believe, six to two? You know, I can't help but notice that you have the background information on the military references. But, you know, like, Shockwave? I mean, where did he grow up? You know, what was his? <laughs> what is was his what, was, it, was his mother and father a toaster? Right. Um, well, let's, you know, let's let's be equal in our our right. facts. Is he a here. truck or a car? Ooh, or turning car. the tables. That's that's for the Transformers podcast. Uh, Victoria, Sarmat, missile or transformer? Missile. It is a missile. It is the name of the future Russian MIRV weapon system. Future the one that missile. Has future missile. It's in development. It's in development. But what about six shot? Six shot. Joel looked excited. So I'm going to I'm gonna read into that one and say it's a transformer. <laughs> it is a transformer. Uh, it sounds a lot like a MIRV with six shot, but Joel's uh, excitement gave it away. But it's now six to four. Let me just say, I think Merv would actually be kind of a fun Transformer name. Uh, I I will admit I had a hamster uh, at one point named Merv. Give you a little more sense of that. Uh, but yeah, back to peace, Merv. back to Joel. Oh yeah, poor guy. Um, East Wind. East Wing. East Wind. Oh, East Wind. Like I'd say that's military. That is. It is the English translation of the Chinese Dongfeng missile system. But what about Midget Man? What? Midget Man. Midget Man. And I'm, say, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm including well. all Transformers, not just the the 80s and the 90s, but maybe a little what? little side stuff, maybe Beast Wars. Oh, come everything. On. Midget Man. Midget Man. I'm gonna go with military still. It is still military. Okay. It is the smaller Minute Man uh, missile, and also kind of offensive. Well, but if you think about it, it's like, all right, we got to come up with these really cool sounding robot names. So when they turn into cars, you know, kids want to like buy the toys. Mm-hmm. It's like Midget, Midget Man. Man. I mean, Midget Man. Um, Victoria. Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Transformer or weapon system? Oh, I think that's the most badass weapon system of all. It is. It is the NATO nickname for the SS-18, the weapon system we covered in our last episode on Peacemaker. Kind of a cool name for this. Uh, sickle. Sickle? I'm going to say that's a transformer. It is a missile system. Wow. It is the, the NATO name for the SS-25, for Russian system. So that is now eight to five. Joel? Yes. Stiletto. Stiletto. And don't look at my answer sheet. Hmm. 
Putting the popcorn bowl in front of it. Are there lady transformers I don't know about? That would be amazing. <laughs> Stiletto. Stiletto. I'm not. I'm not picturing anyone in the Transformers universe, but <sighs> this is difficult. I'm gonna go with a transformer. Unfortunately, it is a trick question. It is both a transformer oh! and a weapon system. It is a the SS-19 weapon system and also a Transformer. Well, I want to know more about a Transformer named Stiletto. We'll, uh, we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes for you. I bet you were specifically looking through lists saying, I gotta find one that's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be a few more later on, so just Wait, keep so that in I, mind. I get credit for that. And that is, no, you do not get credit, mostly because I need to keep this competitive. But the <laughs> next one for you, Joel, is Stingray. Stingray. Transformer or weapon system? I believe Stingray, at the very least, was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character. Mm-hmm. Um, was there, there could be some crossover on that. I'm going to go out on a limb. That sounds like a Transformer. I'm going to say it's a military term. The int- interesting strategy, and it is correct. Oh! It is a uh, SSN-18 submarine missile. No, excellent work. Okay. Victoria? Super Fortress. <laughs> Super Fortress. She's really thinking. Tick-tock. I'm tick. looking at their faces, which are both incredibly suspicious. I'm going to go to the Daisy ad. Turn. Nine. <laughs> eight. I'm going I'm to hope that's military. Six. It is. It is the nickname for the B-29 bomber. I'm sure Super Duper Fortress is the Transformer, right? <laughs> but what about Fortress Maximus? Not Super Fortress. <laughs> Fortress Maximus. Now, we just learned that there's an option of both. Is there also an option for none of the above? That, would be, that, that would be cruel. That sounds like something you would make up. That's, yeah, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I call my apartment. Um, but no, Fortress Maximus is a Transformer. Really? Mm-hmm. According to the internet. Huh. So I will say it is now... you were just making it up. Cause nope. You just add Maximus onto something and it becomes... A nope, it's called Fortress, Fortress Maximus. Uh, so this is uh, 9 to 6 in favor of Joel. But Joel, what about Neptune? Oh, that's military. It is. It is the P-2 bomber. Okay. What about Backfire? That's Transformer. Well, I don't know why Joel keeps getting all the trick questions, but it is both oh. the TU-22M bomber system and a transformer. Really? I, I, I would never have thought when you're trying to name an impressive weapon system that you'd say, <laughs> backfire. let's call it backfire. I know, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, um, but you... Who's the guy that came up with that name? I think he needs a, a little check. I think he's, yeah, I think he's a fry cook now. Um, Valkyrie to Victoria. Valkyrie. Military. It is. The XB-70 bomber. Spirit. Military. Also military. The B-2 stealth bomber. Ooh, catching up a little bit. Eight to, uh, or ten to eight. Joel? Mirage. Mm, Mirage. Mirage. Transformer? Also military. (sighs) 
That's a French bomber and a transformer. I don't know why I feel like bad when I I miss that they're both because you know it's like, yeah you, I gotta, I mean, it's a pretty good guess. I, correct, I mean it's just, you know? it's fun to see the the, the two comparisons here. Uh, uh, Devastator. Oh, that's a transformer. It is a transformer. It's a pretty obvious. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, Eleven to eight. Nike. <laughs> Nike. That's got to be military. Nike. Can't you, it, just, can't you just visualize the Nike robot? Nike, just just blow it up. Uh, it is. It's a ground to air nuclear missile that is used to blow up planes. What about Genie? As in, I dream of? Like Larry Hagelin himself, but Larry Hagelin is not an option. What are the options are? Transformer or military system? I, I also think this is an important time to point out that Tim admitted he hadn't seen I Dream of Genie, and our friendship almost ended at that moment. But I would, I'm going to say Genie is military. It is. It's the air-to-air nuclear missile system that's also used to blow up planes. Basically the one that is described, the real-life bloodhound missile system. So now we have 11 to 10. It's pretty close. It's a tight race. We only have three left here. Joel? Yep. Thunderwing. Transformer. Correct. Nighthawk. Military. Also military. The F-117. The F-117. Stealth attack aircraft. So we now have 13 to 10. Victoria, got to keep this going. Peacemaker. Military. Correct. The B-36 bomber. Tornado. Military. Unfortunately, it is also a transformer. <laughs> uh, that would, that's that's a tough that's a tough blow. Uh, Joel, mm-hmm. I've been tornadoed. Moon Racer. Transformer. Correct. And the last one, Dominator. <laughs> I'm gonna say Transformer as well. Tough, tough to go out on that one, but that is actually oh. a, a World oh. War II era B-32 bomber. Not a nuclear one, but it sounds cool enough that I wanted to end it on that one. So final result, or 14 to 11. I believe that's the math that I did on that. So Joel's proven, nice his, trans- Joel's proven his Transformers love, and Victoria has proven that she uh, watched better television programs growing up than we <laughs> that's did. probably true. So we are running a little bit over, so I'm going to try to rush through the last two points, which are mostly technical. I think this movie does a pretty good job of trying to portray things like Strategic Air Command Headquarters, 20 megaton bombs on airplanes, and the Vindicator itself. I think it attempts to do its homework and get the most accurate prop and depictions, but in the end, uh, they were unable to do so despite their best efforts. The U.S. Air Force and the White House wanted absolutely nothing to do with this movie. 
They refused to help the film with props or technical support, even a picture of what Strategic Air Command looked like that was refused as well. Basically, due to the movie's plot, the Air Force and the White House didn't want the Air Force and the White House to look like it was making a mistake or that the president was nuking an American city. You can kind of understand that. So they fudged the details a little bit here and there. Some of this actually led to some pretty nice artistic choices, things like the uh, very simple rooms that, are, that end up being claustrophobic, having Tatooja Air Command uh, look the way that it did, actually worked in, in many areas, and it focused a lot of the action on the actors uh, themselves, since they had a great cast. But in other ways, but in other ways it's pretty distracting to people like myself, uh, because the movie and the book uh, try to be able to create this fictional Vindicator bomber system. Uh, it is a, supposed to be a supersonic bomber, uh, one that was able to fly very quickly to avoid all the Russian uh, anti-bomber uh, technology. There was a real bomber called the Vindicator in the U.S., but it was phased out almost as soon as World War II broke out. Uh, the real-life Vindicator was a Navy dive bomber built in the 1930s. But the plane we see in the movie is actually uh, mostly a limited amount of stock footage of a real strategic nuclear bomber, the Convair B-58 Hustler. You couldn't get away with calling something the Hustler these days. And in this era of filmmaking, if you weren't able to get the right props, you had to rely not on CGI, but stock footage. The video footage that we see in the movie of six Vindicator bombers taken off from Alaska was actually, you could probably notice it was, notice this when you saw the movie, it's the same exact shot, just little pieces of it shown six times, the single B-58 taking off. They just kind of played around with it like that. Actually gave it a little bit of an eerie look to it. Uh, in the mid-1950s, the Hustler, the real-life Hustler, was one of the first U.S. supersonic bombers that could go twice the speed of sound. The logic of the plane was mostly that it was fast enough to outrun any sort of air defense weapon or jet fighter that the Russians can throw at. It could carry four nuclear bombs on the outside of the plane under the wings, or five if you put one under where the fuselage should be for an extra gas tank. So its range, if you have five bombs, is actually a little bit more limited uh, than if it was just four. For years, it had all the speed records, and it could perform both high-altitude and low-altitude missions. It was fairly maneuverable, uh, and with its cool delta wing design, you could see why they decided that would be the one they would use the stock footage for. But there's a few problems with using the Hustler uh, in terms of a stand-in for the Vindicator, if you really want to be nitpicky about it. The B-58 did not have the range to reach the Soviet Union from the United States. It only had enough fuel capacity for about half of that distance. And only the B-52 and the B-36 were made for these long-range missions. But those planes are pretty big, pretty bulky, and slow. It didn't look probably as cool on film as the Hustler. Although the B-52 is what you see in Doctor Strangelove. And in terms of the inside of the plane, the Hustler cockpit wasn't open like it, you see in the film. In the film, it's actually just a commercial airliner prop that they were able to get the insides to, the pilots in the real Hustler actually couldn't see or talk to each other unless they were using radio or passing notes like you would in the back of class. There was too much electronic equipment between the various pilots. But the cool thing about it was they had ejector pod systems that basically were self-contained ejector seats similar to the ones you see in Harrison Ford's Air Force One movie. Same idea. They think that's where they got the idea from uh, for an ejector seat for the president from these particular bombers. Now, these bombers, or any strategic bombers for that matter, 
were never stationed at Elemendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska. Instead, in-air refueling tankers and air defense systems were located at that base, but they may just be a little bit picky. They probably wanted something close to Alaska to be able to make this movie work. Now, the B-58 was in service for only a short amount of time. By 1970, the planes were set aside due to high rates of accidents, high maintenance costs, the limited range we already talked about, and the fact that it, they couldn't carry as many weapons as the B-52. Improvements in Russian air defenses and the emergence of better U.S. land-based nuclear missiles and submarine with nuclear weapons meant that the Hustlers mission could be done better elsewhere. Now, on this question of 20 megaton bombs, the movie says that the Vindicator carries two 20 megaton nuclear bombs under its wings. Now, maybe in the movie these would have existed for whatever the political circumstance would be in the film, but U.S. bombers, in reality, never really carried bombs that large, especially on planes the size of the B-58. For example, the B-41 warhead was actually the largest nuclear bomb deployed by the United States. It is a three-stage thermonuclear device with a yield of 25 megatons. Now, this could only be carried by the B-52 or the B-47 large heavy bombers. They weighed about 10,000 pounds each. Now, the 25-megaton B-41 bomb was phased out starting in the early 1960s, before this movie would have been filmed. Most other megaton bomb ranges were closer to 10 or 15, although most of the bombers that carried bombs over a megaton were much lower than that. The 20-megaton bombs served the purpose of being city-leveling bombs in the movie, instead of just city center or half a city destroying bombs. So that's probably why they wanted the 20 megaton bombs, so that one plane could raise the stakes more than a series of planes, which was probably what you would need to do to actually destroy Moscow or New York City. Now, in terms of Strategic Air Command headquarters that we see uh, at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, Strategic Air Command is now known uh, in today's world and reality as U.S. Strategic Command since it includes both bombers, missiles, and submarines under their direction. Also, the 55th wing of the U.S. Uh, Air Combat Command is also based there, where they provide strategic command with intelligence and undergo surveillance missions. Instead of its former location at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, Omaha was actually a pretty good location for Strategic Air Command uh, back then because it's in the center of the country a spot where it would theoretically take uh, Soviet bombers a lot longer to reach the middle of the country than they would anywhere on the coast if we got into a shooting war. And one other small fact, the Enola Gay and the Boxcar, two of the B-29 bombers that dropped nuclear weapons on Japan, were actually constructed at that Air Force base in Omaha. This was also the inspiration for the base we see in Dr. Strangelove, where the rogue commander Jack D. Ripper directs the U.S. bombers to blow up Russia. Though, they call that Burpleson in that movie. But in terms of the visuals, even though they weren't able to get a picture of a strategic air command, that's not too far off. Even though the U.S. Air Force didn't help them, they do a pretty good job with things like the war room video screen uh, looking pretty close to what it looks like in real life. And we'll include a picture in the show notes so you can see exactly what that looks like. But one small fact here, the war room video screen was actually hand-drawn art. Uh, to simply drew what they wanted those triangles and squares to look like, and it was projected either from the front or from the back onto the screen. And a few other little technical issues that you can see in the film. Even though this movie was supposed to come out in 1964, it, took, meant, it was meant to take place in 1967. So I guess it assumed in those three years that a great deal of technology advanced forward that actually never came to pass in our world. 
This list includes live satellite imagery, crazy advanced decoys that can just make it look like hundreds of targets all of a sudden appear, and fighter jets that can travel the length of the United States apparently in five minutes. Uh, some of those things are a little bit crazy, but they probably fit well to make the plot of the movie work. Now, finally, the last point I think would be kind of interesting to talk about, since this is different than some of the other films that we've seen, is the uh, air-to-air missiles, the Bloodhounds, that we hear. Are, each plane has about two of those on the Vindicator. Now, I want to mention that while these names are different, U.S. war plans from the 50s to the late 80s contemplated the widespread use of thousands of air defense weapons on the ground and in the air using nuclear weapons to knock incoming Soviet bombers out of the sky. And according to one estimate, as much as one-fifth of the U.S. nuclear arsenal in 1961 were devoted to these air defense missions. If you can picture that in your head, it sounds a little bit crazy. Incoming planes probably flying over Canada are going to be shot down by nuclear weapons from either the ground or from the sky. So you have to then imagine what's worse, having radioactive material rain down on you from above or having your city itself hit with a bomb from the other side. Now, on all link to a uh, report by the National Security Archive, a great source of previously classified documents and FOIA requests located at GW, where I work, where they go into some great detail about what those uh, air-to-air missiles look like. But I'll give a couple of examples of the things that they cite. There were 3,100 air-to-air rockets called Genies, each with two kiloton nuclear warheads on Air Force interceptor aircraft stationed at 31 bases in 20 states starting in 1957. There were 1,900 Falcon-guided air-to-air missiles, each with 0.5 kiloton nuclear warheads. And finally, 2,500 Army Nike-slash-Hercules surface-to-air missiles at 123 launch sites around 26 cities and 10 Air Force bases in 25 states. That's a lot of numbers thrown at you, but the picture is is that we had this wide network of air-to-air and ground-to-air nuclear weapons that were specifically targeted to destroy incoming bombers. They figured one bomb can take out a couple different planes. That's certainly efficiency. Surprisingly, the U.S. government and the public, even the anti-nuclear war movement at the time, didn't put much of a fight up when these systems were deployed. One fun story about this history is that five Air Force officers in 1957 were volunteered by their commanders to stand under a test detonation of the Genie nuclear rocket, also codenamed Ding Dong. Man, they love these, the name these things fun. To basically, this test was to show the public and the military that standing underneath the weapon would be just fine as long as the weapon detonated 18,000 feet up in the air. So I'll link to that story. It's pretty crazy. These types of weapons certainly existed, but the important thing in terms of this movie, they never existed on bombers. Instead, they were on fighter interceptors like the F-89, the F-101, or the F-106, or with ground-to-air missile launchers. Bombers had enough things to worry about without having to fly around with nuclear detonations in front of them to reach their targets. So after going through all this nuclear nonsense, uh, we still need to get to the bottom of whether or not this movie was good. It certainly was overshadowed by Dr. Strangelove, 
but we all watch it today. And, and what do you all, what do you all think, Victoria? What is the we'll we'll, talk, we'll start to call this segment that the parking lot conversation. After you go and see the movie, you and your friends hang out in the parking lot to talk about it before you go your separate ways. So before we leave our kitchen table here today, what did you think about it? Were you impressed by this movie? Would you would you give it to your parents as a Christmas gift? What do you think? I think it was valuable enough to start a conversation, and th- and this podcast proves that. Um, but I'll tell you, as soon as it was done, it was pretty dark, fade to black, screeching noise, message from the Pentagon saying, eh, don't really worry about it, kids, which made you feel like your life was about to end any particular moment. <laughs> and so... I'll, Keeping it sunny. Keeping well, it sunny and optimistic. So the, my point is, is that as soon as it was done, I turned to Tim and Joel and I said, well, uh, thanks for inviting me over to watch another... Uh, piece of brilliance from the Turner Classic Movies era. I'm going to go home and watch Guys and Dolls. <laughs> uh, so I, it was valuable. I don't know that I want to watch it again on a bad day. Um, but it was certainly thought-provoking, and I assume that was its aim. Joel? Uh, I, I could see it being a good movie. Well, here, here's the thing. I was going to say, I could see it being a really good movie for a class, like Victoria said, to start a conversation, you know, as far as maybe you're studying the Cold War period and, you know, it's important to talk. But I think a lot of people would probably say, well, I'd rather watch Dr. Strangelove because you could still get the same conversation out of probably what most would consider a, a more far superior movie in terms of movie making and, and stuff like that. And it'll, it'll make it'll make you laugh while scare you. Right, exa- exactly. And sometimes, I mean, even our conversation, we got into some pretty serious stuff. Sometimes it helps to throw in a little comedy and uh, lightheartedness, which I thought our, our game uh, helped do a little bit. Um, you say because you won. Right. <laughs> um, th- th- but as far as a, a movie, I'm, I'm a little conflicted. Um, in one, On one hand, I think uh, Fonda and a couple other folks uh, like Bogan – um, well, the, the character Bogan, uh, as played by Frank Overton, I thought they did a good job um, in, in individual performances, but I thought there was just some really either bad decisions made or just uh, awkward execution of a lot of the character development, which along the way kind of took me out of the movie and out of the very serious topics and just had me, you know, you know that moment when you're watching a movie, you're you're in that world. And then all of a sudden they do something weird in terms of uh, movie making where you kind of get zapped out of it. And then you're like, wait, I'm in the theater. I'm in the seat. And wait, what's going on? And I had that like the in the example of uh, Matthau's character where he's in the car with the lady early on. And the, the woman is almost trying to like seduce him by talking about the end of the world through nuclear blasts. And he kind of chides her and he actually slaps her in the face. And so I was like, what? this is just such a weird scene. And then I think about it more, I, I realized I think they put that scene in in order to um, make sure the audience thinks of the professor as not some kind of guy with a death death wish who loves the idea of the world blowing up. But they were trying to establish his character as just so coldly objective in terms of winning a war that that he thinks and talks in those terms. And I understood it, but it was just an awkward way to go about doing that. I felt like you could, with just a couple sentences of dialogue, do that uh, without that weird scene. I, I, I want to say I enjoyed the movie, and I think you can enjoy it for the themes that it tosses up for conversation, but I think there are a lot of moments along the way where you, 
thrown for a loop, like the whole Matador dream scene. Mm. You can kind of rationalize, I think, you know, the references to making a spectacle out of violence or a spectacle out of nuclear war and how close we could be to uh, annihilation. Uh, so I, I think there, there are references, you know, to, to the spectacle of nuclear war and millions of people dying. Uh, and one person makes a reference to, you know, you make it seem beautiful or you're trying to make it seem beautiful. But it just the way the movie went about doing that, I thought really took away from its overall impact. And that's where I think Dr. Strangelove was so successful is because it was able to get you thinking about those same topics, but also in a kind of a fun, innovative, you know, a, an interesting way that that I don't think people would have expected for a movie on nuclear weapons. Yeah, and I don't really have a lot more to add on that. I, I enjoyed the movie uh, in particular mostly because of the the context of when it took place and and its role in people's conversations about about nuclear weapons, and especially the interesting history that it had uh, in relation to Doctor Strangelove, but the acting and the sets, the way the sets really make people feel um, very confined, very claustrophobic, isolated from each other, does a great job uh, to kind of make this movie for at least when I watch it the first, second, and third times, very it, it left an impact on me. But those moments that Joel mentioned, the beginning and the end of the movie with the bullfighting, the use of neg- negative imagery uh, in terms of st- the, the film imagery is, is very jarring, and it doesn't really work as well as I think that they were trying uh, to make it work. It, it definitely seems a movie that w- is very low budget, but that works for it in some places, but other places uh, doesn't work as well. And when I watch Doctor Strangelove, I don't get that sense. I, I, I get a, a sense of a movie that's more, very more, more polished and allows that message that they're both movies are trying to get across about the potential for accidental nuclear war and despite all of our various fail-safe systems that that's still a possibility that message comes across to me a little bit better um, than the way this movie is done but real quickly if we can go around the, the table here uh, do a rating out of five we like to change the rating system each time so I think this time um, we can do the number of simultaneous conference call lines five being that sounds pretty cool that's a good conference call uh, that we can all get around even though it's a lot of people on it but one conference call is the worst because you're really just talking to yourself uh, at that particular point so the so how would you rate it what number how many number of conference call lines would you give it victoria i'd give it three conference call lines which is usually just enough to know one person's in the wrong city <laughs> um joel what would you give it i'd probably give it two uh for the you know the reason I stated before, as far as good topics but weird execution in some ways, if it didn't have folks like Fonda and some of the other like serious actors, I'd probably give it a one, especially in relation to Doctor Strangelove. It's really difficult to escape those comparisons. Um, I think I'd probably give it a 3.5, and that, that 0.5 is someone that keeps getting dropped off the call but really wants to keep getting on. Uh, and I, I say that because of the performances, the fact that the movie tries to aim for a very serious conversation about nuclear war that movies previously didn't really engage in. A lot of movies at that time um, were about some sort of nuclear war that was about to hit the United States, and it was about heroic individuals saving us from the enemy that was about to attack us, uh, whether they be alien or Russian. Uh, but this movie is about humans dealing with a mistake on their own part, which is could be where this takes place. Um, conversations about whether or not we should keep our weapons on high alert, whether or not we should do something called demating them, keeping the warhead separate from the missiles, so that when we make the decision to go to war, it's a deliberate one and not one made under uh, very 
basically under under forced circumstances very quickly. I think those are conversations that the movie does well and pushes that in people's minds. And I'm glad that in terms of a public service message to get people thinking about this, it, I think it's, it earns a 3.5 conference call lines um, for me. And I, I don't think we really need to go through our, our usual segment of nuclear most offensive because we've already kind of talked about what's most offensive to people. Uh, I would just say the, the code trigger... Um, malfunction is a little bothersome to me because I think it's a little lazy to create a different protocol if all your if you're trying to say that protocols that exist today are wrong and can lead to an accident you don't need to make up something and I think Dr. Strangelove does a good job of that of saying you have all these systems in place it's just still a human run system and we're not talking war games where the computers literally control everything we're talking about people and systems and how people respond to that and I think that there's probably some other plot device they could have used to get the ball rolling so I think we can wrap up now, uh, but I have a few things to, for additional reading assignments for people that listen to this and want to be able to learn more about some of the topics that were discussed in this movie and in our podcast today. So in addition to Command and Control, which I always recommend people reading, I recommend people uh, checking out the L. Douglas Keeney 2011 book, 15 Minutes. General Curtis LeMay and the Countdown to Nuclear Annihilation. Keeney is a military historian, actually the co-founder of the Military Channel, and his book goes into great detail about the use of bombers during the Cold War, how they maintained a 15-minute launch-on-warning window, and it's a little pro- uh, you know, strategic air command in terms of its tone, but it's a great collection of facts and uh, good use of recently declassified information. And also, I recommend a little plug for the place I work at. Uh, George Washington University has this thing, uh, a center called the National Security Archive that does a lot of freedom of, of information requests to get classified information out in the public. And they have great reports, which we'll link to in our show notes, on, on everything, but specifically about those air-to-air uh, nuclear missiles and airborne alerts um, that we talked about in the podcast. Podcast today. So go check that out. Actual documents from the time, how people discuss this at the highest level, and you can get a really good sense of, of where we were uh, at the time that this movie uh, came out. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical, the nuclear movie podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there's a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, you can join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. You can also uh, get at us on Twitter, at nuclearpodcast, and over email at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, really would appreciate it if you were to uh, subs- consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. It really helps us uh, grow the audience, find new listeners, and uh, we can also want to hear what you have to write on, on, on the review about your favorite uh, tricky sticking point plot point. Um, so until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And thanks for having me, guys. Is your This is your friend, Vicki. Great. Thank you so much, Vicki, for being here. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.